Hello, my name is Angel Wood, and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. faces how you doing how you holding up it's cold love to texas everyone in texas needs our good vibes sending them to you i'm a new englander i'm a crusty new englander and well you never get used to cold weather and snow but you come to know what to expect texans have no reason to expect snow and texans have no reason whatsoever to be prepared to shovel snow they don't sell snow shovels in texas that's hard to say Thank you very much for your emails. I've gotten a few new stories to cover. Very good ones. Very, very good ones. So thank you for that. Thank you to supporters Tom B. and Sandy. VIPs you are. Thank you very much. You may buy me a coffee online, crimeofthetruestkind.com. You will see the banner at the top of the page. I will be setting up a Patreon in the coming weeks and or months. And merch, my merch store is coming too. Very exciting. You'll probably hear Otis making noise. He's sitting right behind me. He's a bulldog, if you were wondering. Follow the show Crime of the Truest Kind on Facebook and Instagram, at Truest Kind on Twitter and TikTok. Very briefly, I want to touch on the Cecil Hotel documentary that aired on Netflix last week. I got a lot of action online about this. I feel like the culmination of the four-part series was expected. I did not think for a moment that Morbid, the black metal guy, murdered Elisa Lam. And this online web sleuthing that comes to light throughout this documentary is an embarrassment. When you cyber bully people and accuse them of doing things with a hunch, you're sitting behind a computer. You're not a detective. Cut the shit. Morbid, by the way, Pablo Vogera, doing very well. You can find him online. He's very actively posting. The Cecil Hotel and the Elisa Lam story is one of hundreds, thousands of crime stories that took on a life of their own. We should always be concerned with the truth. And this one's not really unlike the story of the station nightclub fire on February 20th, 2003. Before any investigation was done, before any facts were established, before it was even known who lived and who died, they'd already decided on a culprit. This was before YouTube channels, before Reddit boards, before Facebook groups. Today, I want to share with you the story of the station, and we lay out some unheard truths. I talked to the author of the recent release, Trial by Fire, a devastating tragedy, 100 lives lost in a 15-year search for truth. Written by journalist and New England native, Scott James. Eighteen years ago, the very little town of West Warwick, Rhode Island, burst into the national spotlight. News crews from around the world were clamoring for a shot of the disaster that was playing out. It wasn't anything these people asked for. A small, working-class town just shy of 30,000 residents at the last census. People who lived here lived pretty simple lives. Go to work, take care of your family, go blow off some steam at the local watering hole. Rhode Island is this little state in southern New England that separates Massachusetts from Connecticut. Sort of. 
Massachusetts is the coolest. Connecticut, not the coolest. Simmer down, Connecticut. I'm only kind of kidding. Actor Viola Davis is from here. Charlie Day, Deborah Messing. H.P. Lovecraft is from Rhode Island. The Farrelly Brothers, Jesse from Killswitch Engage. Kristen Hirsch of Throwing Muses. The delightful Tanya Donnelly of Belly. And you cannot leave out the pride of North Providence. John Cafferty of the Beaver Brown Band. My friend used to babysit for his cousin in New Hampshire. She pierced my ears with ice and a needle in their living room. My friend, not his cousin. Good story, though. Other famous things from Rhode Island. Coffee milk, gagas, quahogs, family guy, buddy Cianci, Newport. A very beautiful place to visit in the summer. Historic mansions, cliff walks, Newport Folk and Jazz Fests at Fort Adams. And it's a beautiful drive down the coast. For all the shit Rhode Island gets for its tiny existence, it is a lovely place and I recommend you see it for yourself. Rhode Island has definitely seen its share of disasters. There's hurricanes, floods, train wrecks, Kurt Schilling. The most infamous in recent memory is the fire at the station. Its effects reverberate across generations. Built in 1946, it was first a dining and dancing hall called Casey's. Then, over the next five decades, it changed hands often. But in 1991, the trouble really began when the property, sold to the neighborhood as a sports pub, actually became Cracker Jack's, a live music venue for late nights and loud rock. Seems like a great idea if you don't live next to it. Neighbors were very angry about this bait-and-switch, as one homeowner called it. 1993 saw a new owner and a new business, the filling station. Neighbors would file grievance after grievance to no avail. The noise problems in the neighborhood were endless. Fast forward to March 2000. Brothers Michael and Jeffrey Dedarian buy the club, and they rebrand it The Station. Michael was a private citizen, a successful financial advisor. Jeffrey, on the other hand, was a very public one. For several years, he'd worked in the Providence and Boston television news markets as a reporter. I remember Jeffrey Dedarian from watching him on Channel 7 News in Boston. He's the kind of reporter that you might see following a subject out of a court hearing or hollering questions at a press conference. The station would be the building's final incarnation and the Dedarian's the last owners. In their desire to be seen as good neighbors, the brothers made visits to residents in the area around the venue. It was less likely about goodwill gesturing and more about appeasing the new police chief who was on a tear about the station. Their entertainment license was at risk if they did not work to resolve the noise issues. As new owners, they seemed to work diligently to find out what would absorb the sound. They hoped to find something that would please the neighbors and keep their license. In their research, they decided to buy 25 foam blocks from someone experienced in the field. So they believed. Funny enough, the salesperson was a neighbor of the venue. So the new owners purchased 25 foam blocks to dampen the sound. They buy them from a neighbor of the venue who happens to sell them for a living. Foam blocks that are pretty common in the sound world. You see them in recording studios and radio stations and music venues. The soundproofing plays a major role in this story. On the night of February 20th, 2003, a night that will live in infamy, the 
80s rock hacks Great White were on the bill to headline at the station. I guess I'll tread softly on that one because I always had a lot of anger toward the band, particularly Jack Russell, who was Great White at the time. The room filled up with fans and friends. They were anxious to get out of the house and have some fun. It was late February in New England, cold as shit, and a nor'easter had just blown through and dropped bundles of snow on the ground. It was piled up in familiar mountains in the corners of the parking lot. The band took the stage just after 11 o'clock. As they launched into their opening song, their tour manager lit the gerbs. They were 15-foot sparklers, a way to make the band feel like they were still playing arenas when they were really playing state fairs and dive bars. In a matter of seconds, the flames flew up those foamed walls. This moment is captured on video. A photographer from a local TV station had been getting some B-roll for a story on venue safety. Yes, I said venue safety. As singer Jack Russell notices what is happening, he is heard saying, well, that's not good. No, it was very bad. Fans mistook it as part of the show. Others in the venue recognized that it was a problem, and they started to move out of the room to safety. Once the fire alarm activated, it was outright mayhem inside. The building was not equipped with a sprinkler system. They didn't have to have one. Many conspiracies grew from the discrepancies that followed about how many people were really inside. Who's to blame? What happened to the exits? What is the real story? The facts are this. 100 people died in the station fire. 230 others were hurt, some very badly, with scars both obvious and invisible. The real death toll from that night could be innumerable because there was a ripple effect that lasted for years. Here we are, 18 years later. Do we really know what happened? Scott James is a veteran journalist and best-selling author, and also a New England native. His reporting has appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times. And he is the recipient of three Emmy Awards for his work in television news. Scott's most recent book is Trial by Fire, a devastating tragedy, 100 lives lost, and a 15-year search for truth. He has spent more than a decade investigating what remains the deadliest rock concert in American history. This is our conversation. Let me ask you first, you're a Rhode Islander. Where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in a suburb of Providence in actually North Attleboro, Massachusetts. As you know, you're from that area. Everything's very small. It's hard for people in other parts of the country. They hear like, well, you know, you're in different states. It's like, no, actually, I was on the state line. Mm -hmm. So, uh... But my family's in Rhode Island still there to this day. And in fact, uh, in my career, I would spend a large chunk of my journalism career running a TV newsroom in Providence, Rhode Island. This was mm-hmm. years before mm-hmm. the fire actually happened. Mm-hmm. And you know Jeffrey Dedarian. You work together. Well, he was my employee. And uh, actually, it's really interesting how many of the people involved in this tragedy uh, were people who were employees of mine. And this mm-hmm. goes back 25 years now, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, the there's uh, one of the twists in this awful tragedy is it was all captured on videotape oh, yeah. uh, because there was a local TV news crew that was in there doing another story. They were shooting what's called generic B-roll. The photographer, a guy named Brian Butler, decided to, wouldn't it be fun to stick around and maybe videotape the opening songs of Great White? It wasn't even part of the story he was working on. He just thought it'd be fun to have the footage bring back to the station and show the guys. And so he was rolling when the band took the stage and lit off fireworks 
that started this inferno that ended up killing 100 people. Well, Brian Butler was a photog who worked for me when I was news director at Channel 6 in Providence. And then uh, probably the person who is the biggest nemesis or one of the biggest nemesis of Jeffrey Dedarian, the nightclub business owner, is a guy named Tom Bridey, who is the defense attorney for Daniel Beakley, mm-hmm. the roadie tour manager who actually shot off the fireworks. And uh, Tom, to this day, will rail and rail and rail against uh, the Dedarian brothers. So, And Tom worked for me. He was a TV news reporter way back when, and he was an employee of mine. So, you know, they say that the world is divided, you know, six degrees of separation, but then in Rhode Island, it's only a degree and a half. Right. I think that is true. <laughs> See, if you didn't know someone who was there at the fire, you certainly knew someone who knew someone. Right. You're absolutely right. Would you have handled this? I mean, certainly the way this story took off internationally, it was being covered, but probably had a lot to do with that footage, right? That made well, for some so. sexy broadcasting, right? Well, I think um, it was so rare. I mean, look, yeah. in, in 2021, we are used to the idea that everything is captured on video. Uh, but back in 2003, the iPhone had not even been invented yet. And so it was extremely rare for real tragedies to be caught on video. And this was captured by a professional journalist. Mm-hmm. That's even more rare. You have to go back to like the mm-hmm. Hindenburg or 9-11 to find professional news footage of a tragedy of this magnitude happening right before the mm-hmm. camera. If you were in Providence at that time, would you have covered this any differently? I think it's a very good question. I I think part of the reason that I was able to get folks to talk to me uh, for the first time and share their stories for the first time for this book is because I was not there. I had long since left and moved to California and was working out here. And so when I came back, uh, even though I had known people and I thought this would give me an edge at least to ask if they'd speak, uh, what I found was that people had not spoken at all to a journalist since that time for a variety of reasons. But part of it was they felt there was incredible media bias against them, that the media was on a search for, instead of uh, facts and truth, they were on a search for villains and blame and and fall guys. Uh, And so uh, there was a great deal of resentment against the media. But I do ask myself this, Angel, I do think if I had been part of that media scrum, would I have acted just the same way as everyone else? And I don't know the answer to that, but I was a very uh, aggressive journalist back then. And so I would have treated all the parties very aggressively. I think some of the disappointments in looking back at the media coverage now uh, through my you know, lens uh, where I have command of all the facts is how many mistakes were made, really basic mistakes in the reporting and I know it's easy for me to criticize now that it was mayhem then and there was a lot going on. And, and you know, this is what happens in the fog of war. Mistakes yeah. are made. Yeah. Uh, but some of them are really very basic. I mean, one of the things that it's brought up about the nightclub was that, uh, you know, they were having fireworks every night. That these, this rut, you know, it's happening every day. But the problem with that theory, it just seems to be common sense. I don't understand why people didn't apply common sense to their journalism is that, you know, the reason this inferno happened was because the nightclub walls were covered with this highly flammable foam. Well, it's not only highly flammable on Thursdays in February, it was right. highly flammable for three years. Right. So had there been fireworks like this any time in those three years, the place would have gone up like a torch. That foam was the equivalent of 13 gallons of gasoline. Incredible. And so if a flame had touched it before, 
the place would have gone up before. So it was really kind of irresponsible to be reporting, and it was reported, that this type of activity activity happened every single night at that club. That is simply not scientifically rational. Right. And yet those are the type of things that people reported. Right. We've come to learn all these years later that the room was over capacity. There were well, no sprinklers. There's a debate about that. Well, really? There's no debate about the sprinklers. Uh, you know, that is, you know, one of the great failings of this. I mean, yeah. before we get to the fireworks, before we get to the to the show, we get to the fact that this building was a death trap. Mm -hmm. uh, there were no sprinklers in a place that hosts hundreds of people. Uh, they call this grandfathering, and right. it's not just a New England thing. It's basically that, you know, your building abides somewhat by the codes that apply to it when it was built. Mm -hmm. And so even though we have more modern codes now, um, they don't go and apply them retroactively, or they didn't, I should say. And so that was the case with the Station Nightclub our building. It had no sprinklers. Sprinklers are a uh, technology that dates back to the 1800s. This is not new stuff. Uh, we do know that, you know, this is, they consider this to be the uh, perfect storm of fires, that mm -hmm. a lot of things went wrong simultaneously. But that's a big one. Had the building had sprinklers, everyone would have lived. And we certainly know this. It's not just a theory, because just a few days before this fire, there was a very similar situation at a club in Minneapolis. Bands set off fireworks inside a club, caught uh, flammable foam. The place went up like a torch, but that building had sprinklers. The fire was put out immediately, and everyone survived. So not having sprinklers is a really terrible mistake, and that is systemic. That's the government. Mm -hmm. That's not just a couple of dudes or a tour manager uh, to point point the finger at that's uh the, the codes that were in place uh so you also had an inspection system that was supposed to check to make sure that buildings are safe just weeks before that's this right. fire that's this right. was given an a-okay all that's okay right. uh inspection so it was a safe building well, it wasn't a safe building mm -hmm. so now we've got two systemic institutional failures to happen before we even get to that night that puts these people in danger the capacity question is one that I dig into quite a lot. In fact, I have a whole chapter devoted to it because uh, there are many conflicting stories about that. And some of it only became public many, many years after all the legal cases played out when grand jury testimony, secret grand jury testimony was made public. And so in that, you have a lot of different perspectives on this. One of the most interesting is one of the band members who is almost like a uh, a savant when it came to estimating clubs, clubs, uh, uh, size of uh, an audience at a club. And I don't know if this is because bands get a cut of the door or whatever, but this guy could tell you like on a particular gig, how many people were in the room just by looking at the room. And he was always right. Wow. He's the very first person to testify at the grand jury. And they asked him, how many people do you think was in, were in the room? And he said somewhere in the three hundreds. Hmm. So and that would be under capacity. Well, the legal capacity of the place was 404 for right. the audience. Mm -hmm. This is another thing that's crucial to keep in mind about capacity. The capacity only applies to the public parts of the club. So anyone who is behind the scenes, on the stage, in the green room, behind the bar, in the back offices, in the kitchen, they actually, they're, they're not counted in that legal capacity. The 404 applies to the public areas of the club. So legally, uh, the place was... Uh, probably under capacity, mm -hmm. but we mm -hmm. still have a situation where there's far too many people to get out safely when the fire started. And we know this because a hundred are dead and hundreds are hurt. So there's mm -hmm. reality 
versus what might be legal. So legal capacity is a big question. It's something I unpack quite a bit. Look, there was a clicker. Uh, there was a woman who had a clicker to the head count. People check the clicker, and in the grand jury testimony, sworn testimony, they say the number they saw in the clicker. It was in the 300s. It was not over 400. Mm -hmm. And so you have that, but the media didn't know any of that at the time. That would not come out until many, many, many years later. And there was a local newspaper that wrote a big front page investigation where they put the capacity at 412. Uh, and so they pronounced that it was illegal over, over capacity. When I think there's some doubts about their journalism. Yeah. Uh, first of all, they didn't understand the difference between the public parts of the club and the private. So they count like somehow 30 people who were behind the scenes. They count them in the 412 uh, when they shouldn't, they weren't in part of the 404 space. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, I found people who they said they had interviewed and confirmed her there who demonstrably were not inside the club when the fire started. One particularly uh, colorful uh, case was a guy who was a freelancer journalist running to the scene of the fire. He is seen on YouTube running to the club as it is burning. And he is counted officially and the new newspapers count as somebody that they interviewed and confirmed was inside the club oh. when the fire started. Oh. So there's things like that. Yeah. People who are survivors, uh, have very, very strong opinions about this. They look at the list of names of people who claim they were there that night, and they will look at, and they will point and they'll say, liar, mm -hmm. that person wasn't there, that person's making it up. Some people who were not inside the club when the fire started ended up getting very big settlements and money. And so this is a point of great controversy among the people who were lives were impacted by this, but also in just understanding the, the criminal case against the, the defendants, this question about capacity is a really big one. Clear up a couple of things for me, because there's all these years later, there's still some, I'm still unsure about egress. What was the situation with the exits? Now you hear, you wrote in the book about, you know, a bouncer saying you can't come out you can't come back here because this is the band space. Even though the room was filling up with, with flames, people couldn't get out the back door. There were other exits, but you hear so much misinformation about were there other exits? Did people know there were other exits? Were they accessible? Were they locked? Were there chains through them? Um, what do you know about that? Well, it's interesting. Some of this comes out in that secret uh, grand jury testimony that people did not have access to at the time. It wouldn't have access to until many years later. Some of it uh, was reported uh, in the newspaper, and some of it, frankly, didn't fit the storyline that people had been told and has not been reported until this book. So the club had four exits. Uh, the one that is the infamous one is the stage door. So the stage door is uh, noteworthy for a couple different reasons. Uh, number one, this is the door that would had to be remained closed during shows because not because it was for VIPs only, which has become part of the, the lore that's been spun. Mm -hmm. It was had to remain closed because it kept the sound in Noise. the club. Yeah. Right. 
the uh, nightclub business owners, um, these two brothers, Michael and Jeffrey Judarian, bought the club in 2000, and then they were immediately approached by the local police chief who said, look, if you don't do something about the sound complaints, we're going to not give you a license. Right. Yeah. So it's an existential threat to deal with the sound. Right. So during live performances, they had someone uh, stationed at that door whose job it was to make sure that the door stayed shut. Not... This is for VIPs only, but the door had to stay shut. And that door is heavily uh, padded in this foam because it's keeping the sound in the club. So this is the role. This is why the door is shut. And so there are reports that when the fireworks go off and there's some initial flames, that some people made a move towards that door and that they were turned away. Uh, It's hard to believe, and there's a, a very famous photograph, actually, of that moment when you see the person who's assigned to that door and there's flames behind him. And you can just tell from his face he has no idea there are flames behind him. He feels a cigarette in his mouth. And right. so, right, right. So he testifies to the grand jury. And this is where things get complicated. He tells a story that, frankly, a lot of people don't want to hear, which is basically that, uh, you know, he, he, first of all, he wasn't a bouncer. He wasn't even an employee of the club. He was just a customer who was asked before the show if he could stand at that door and make sure it stayed shut, which is what he did. And so, um, you know, he, he would see things differently, that, that basically that was, you know, he wasn't turning people away, that this was only for VIPs. So that story was going to be challenged if it, was, if it had gone to trial. So all right, the door is important for a couple of different reasons I mentioned. First of all, uh, that's the door that the bank gets out. And other people who I talked to got out that door. But here's the, what changes, is that that's where the fire started, mm-hmm. right next to that door. And so the temperature of that fire, when it's fueled by this highly flammable foam, gets to more than 1,000 degrees in a matter of seconds. And so that door, even though it is wide open, and you can see this on the video, um, the people can't get out of it because you can't get past that flame. So there's exit of the four exits, that one is out of commission almost immediately. There's another exit through the, the kitchen. And so this is something we learned in the secret grand jury testimony, is that before the nightclub uh, business owners bought the business, there had been an inspection, and the West Warwick fire inspector said that that was not a legal exit through the kitchen, that under state code, you couldn't have an exit through a kitchen. Maybe they're worried about people slipping on the floor or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he took down all of the exit signs that showed that that's where they get out. And when the mm-hmm. fire happens, people are employees of the club. They know that there's an exit there. In fact, many of them uh, leave that way and end up uh, surviving because of that exit. Then there are two left. So each of these exits, these four exits, by the way, are, are wide enough, doors are wide enough to be rated that they can get 150 people out per minute, safely evacuate. Well, now two of them are gone. So now you're down to like, right. Mm-hmm. So some people know the exit that's go to the parking lot, which is near the bar. And then there's the last remaining exit, which is the way you came in. So the entrance is naturally an exit. Yeah. And in our minds. Usually what people things, do, right? right? They gravitate back to what they knew. I'm going to go what I know, which is that's how I get in. That's how I get out. The problem is now you have hundreds of people trying to get out this one door. And it creates this incredible uh, stampede and a backup and eventually a door jam. And it's terrible to say this, but you literally have people who are piled up in the doorway and behind them are people who can't get out. Most of the people who perished in this fire, their remains are found, found at that door. 
Others are found near their kitchen exit. Mm-hmm. And frankly, had they known that they could get out that way, you have to wonder if they would have survived. So again, so many things go wrong all simultaneously. The exits are something that goes horribly wrong. But I think when they designed places, even having these many exits, uh, they never could have anticipated that a place was going to be filled with highly flammable foam that would take, you know, this fire moved faster than a quote-unquote normal fire because of that foam. It would just, it went up like a torch. and an accelerator, essentially. Correct. And you had this other complication. Another thing that goes wrong is for the first 30 seconds after the fire starts, most people don't understand the danger. They think the columns of flames going up on either side of the stage are part of the act. And you see this because of that video. People are still mm. partying. They're still dancing. They're still giving the rock and roll sign. Jack Russell and Great White are still playing. And nobody really gets it until the alarm. They hear the alarm. The music stops. You hear the alarm screeching. And then people start to panic. And people, But at that point, you're down to one minute to evacuate That's right. hundreds of people. And now we know that at least two of the exits are really effectively out of commission. And then the other, the other main one uh, quickly becomes jammed. Can we jump to the band? Their manager became the fall guy. One of them, yes. Great, and I'm just going to say it, and I don't apologize for this part. Great White became synonymous with stupidity and idiocy for me as a rock fan. And hey, look, I've seen Great White. I saw Great White open up for White Snake on the Great White Snake tour, so I know what's happening. Why did they get off so easy? I mean, they lost a band member. That's very serious. But they were responsible. They were told reportedly that they could not use pyro. They did. Why did they get off so easy? It's an actual criminally, question. I guess, is is how I should how I should address right. that. No, you're right, right. Um, it's an excellent question, and one of the things that people ask me is why wasn't this person indicted? These other people indicted? And in fact, there's great anger uh, still in the state of Rhode Island to this day that more people were not held criminally responsible for this uh, tragedy. So to back up a little bit, um, the attorney general who was brand new on the job, a guy named Patrick Lynch, only a matter of weeks had been in that job when this horrible thing happens. Uh, just really just the, like the, the governor, by the way. Correct. Wow. Uh, right. And what a difference. The governor is seen as, as really bringing the state together, rallying and, and being a problem solver. And the attorney general history is judged very differently. So he starts off, I mean, think of it from their perspective. They are trying to make sense out of chaos. And uh, I think any, in all fairness to the attorney general, any uh, prosecutor or investigator would have been overwhelmed with the the, the tragedy of this magnitude. So he sends his staff out to do some research. And this produces what he refers to in the book, and we hear about this for the first time, called the document. Mm. The document is important because the document basically is they look at fire cases from all over, all over the world big fires, and they ask a few questions. One of them is, who was most likely to be indicted in these cases? Who was most likely to be convicted? And how much time did that person or persons uh, spend in prison? And these are the key questions that they use to guide them into who to pursue to prosecute. Now, you can look at it two different ways. You can say, well, that's a smart guy, look, precedent, what is possible? Uh, But you could look at it the other way, which is basically, well, wait a minute, why not just investigate the facts of this case and let the facts 
guide you as to who you should prosecute and who you should hold accountable. Why do you need to know what anyone else ever did uh, in these? So it becomes one of those situations where is our legal justice system set up to go after the truth or do we go after who we think we can get? Mm-hmm. And those sometimes are two different things. Mm-hmm. And I think in this case, people often ask, why not this person, why not that person? Well, the short answer is they weren't in the document. The mm-hmm. document is like indictment by spreadsheet. If there are enough checks in your boxes, you're going to be indicted. If there aren't, then the odds are not as good for them to get a conviction, so they're not going to go after you. There was some speculation that because Jack Russell was a celebrity, this would be a problem, uh, that people wouldn't convict. You know, the fire inspector who arguably didn't do his job, uh, there were possibilities. Other people disagree about whether or not he could have been held criminally uh, culpable. But it's not successful to go after people who are our safety officers. We see the debate now about how hard it is to convict a police officer from brutality, mm-hmm. even if it's caught on videotape. Mm-hmm. Well, people don't go and convict firefighters or, or people who work in fire departments either. So there's that obstacle. So there's a lot of different things. So the what if, why not this person, why not that person is a complicated answer. The very first night. The Dadarians were very open. I know Michael Dadarian was away and he flew back and Jeffrey was working that night. At first, they were willing to talk because they felt like they had nothing to hide. But local authorities immediately moved to blaming like that night, the night of the fire, zero investigation done. Families are still trying to sort out what's happened, let alone figure out if their loved one is coming home or not. Local authorities had already decided that the Dardarians, who who were like days or weeks away from selling, I'm so unfortunate, they were days or weeks away from selling the station and getting out from under that burden. Because, spoiler, rock clubs don't make a lot of money. They they were vilified right out of the gate. Correct. How did that happen and why did that happen? Well, this is one of the the mysteries uh, of the the tragedy that I try to clear up in the book. I I go back... And get an answer to that. So basically, the night of the fire, the local police chief of the town of West Warwick, he tells the Associated Press that the nightclub business owners, Michael and Jeffrey Darian, quote, most definitely, end quote, will face criminal charges. Now, this is without doing any investigation. Uh, and this statement that he makes has implications. It changes the course of the investigation, and I would argue it changes the outcome of this entire case. So up until that moment, uh, the Darians had been completely cooperating with the authorities. Right. Jeffrey had done two long interviews with police and prosecutors. He had written a, a, a statement by hand. Michael had been interviewed over the phone by the police. So they were cooperating completely because in their mind, they had nothing to hide. Mm-hmm. We know today about the foam and how that played a role and all these different things. Right. None of that was known then. In fact, in those initial hours when Jeffrey is giving his statement, we don't even know that there are people dead. That doesn't become right. announced until hours later. And then the number of dead, we don't learn till later. So people were genuinely shocked when they heard that somebody had perished. I mean, they knew it was a bad fire. They knew that there was a, a, a terrible incident. But uh, anyone who tells you that they knew that the gravity of the situation as it was happening is is simply not telling you the truth. It evolved over time. So in these hours afterwards, when we don't know that there were even people who have perished, they've started this investigation, and the statement is made by the police chief. 
So this has a domino effect because after it becomes known that he has said this and it gets carried all over the world, including on Fox News, the Dedarians, who have an attorney, who, by the way, was working on the, the sale of the club, contact them and says, OK, you're not talking right. to the police or prosecutors anymore. And they're like, well, why not? We have nothing to hide. And she's like, you don't understand. They've already decided you're guilty. Mm-hmm. And there were little hints of it for Jeffrey. When he was giving his statement to police, they asked him to omit that he had had an off-duty police officer stationed inside the club that they'd hired for the night for safety purposes. They actually suggested to him that he should leave that out of his statement, which later he would realize that was kind of a funky thing to say. So it seemed like decisions had already been made that they were uh, guilty uh, in this case. So, all right, so now we go years later. Uh, The book is called A a 15-Year Search for the the truth, because at about the 15-year mark after the fire is when uh, it all kind of comes together for me. It's where the the timeline of the story ends, because I finally get to the police chief, and I ask him, how did you know? And I, of course, I put it in a way like, how did you know before anyone else that these guys were the ones who were guilty? And he just basically said, well, it's just common sense. They were the license holders of the business, So therefore, they had to be guilty. So that just confirms that no investigation was done. It wasn't based on any facts or any knowledge. It was just based on this idea that if you're a license holder, the operator of a business, uh, then you're guilty. Now, people tend to forget that the Daddario brothers didn't actually own the building. They were renters. Mm -hmm. So if you follow the police chief's reasoning, then the Port Authority of the state of New York should have been the ones criminally prosecuted for 9-11 because they were the license holders. They were the renters of the World Trade Center. So forget bombers, explosions, anything like that. Uh, If you're the license holder of the business that's operating, then you are the one who's automatically guilty. So, But this has a domino effect. The Darians stopped talking to prosecutors. Uh, Then they want to take their case public. Uh, Their lawyer is definitely against this idea of trying this case in the public, but uh, they do do a press conference. Uh, Jeffrey tries to explain what they know. He can barely make it through a statement. He's incredibly traumatized by this, as is every single person who was there that night. He has a complete breakdown in front of the cameras, cries the entire time he tries to speak. Um, And then later, uh, the media basically seemed to turn on them. That, was, that mm-hmm. press conference was seen as not sincere. Mm-hmm. Even though wow. they apologized for what happened, it was seen as crocodile tears. Not you know, and so, and then two months to the day after the fire, the local newspaper decides to run an investigation, and the investigation is basically looks into the background of the Dedarian brothers, the nightclub business owners. Is this the and legacy it, of death? Yes, they do an article mm. called Legacy of Death. It's a screaming six-column headline, Ugh. front-page headline, where they determine that the brothers have a legacy of death. And you have to follow the reasoning here. So uh, the Dedarians are of Armenian heritage. And so that's checkbox number one in their legacy of death. They come from a group of people who were the victims of a horrible genocide around the time of World War One. So there's part one of the legacy of death that they bring to the table. Then when they were children, their mother died. So that's part two of the legacy of death. And then, of course, you get to the nightclub fire. And so the implication here is that this legacy of death, that the death follows these people. They are the angels of death wherever they go. And there was a shooting as well in there. Right, there was a shooting. The the dad got shot but survived. The dad got shot. They ran a um, a grocery store and the (laughs) dad got shot. So after they see this legacy of death, investigation by the province journal they decide that day they will never 
ever speak to a journalist again. Mm -hmm. And so me, I come into the picture many, many years later, and I had, you know, Jeffrey was an employee of mine, so I knew him, and I thought, well, you know, let's see. You know, I I did not understand how much hatred they had for the news media until I entered the picture, and then they're like, no, we're not talking to you. We're not talking to anyone. It took me years to persuade them to speak, um, and then it took years, frankly, of to get them to drop their guard enough to tell me things that were important for this book to really get inside their heads and to be able to tell the story. There was a lot of uh, earning of trust uh, that had to happen before they could talk. How did the families feel? Which Is, families? Did the families blame Great White? Did the families blame the Dedarians? Who, where does that lie? You know, it's one of the things that was an incredible discovery for me in working on this is how there were all these dividing lines between mm-hmm. the different groups of victims in this case. Uh, and it's hard to understand, and I explore this in the book, and I hope I... Uh, but it was, it was shocking to me, and I think it's shocking to readers. So after the fire, the victims kind of divide up. Yeah. Uh, so there are the families of the people who perished, the victims' families, and then there are the survivors. Some of them are horribly burned and suffer. Some of them lost friends and loved ones in the fire. Well, the families of the victims who perished hate the survivors. Oh. So there's this theory that goes around that you're alive and my loved one is dead because mm. you stepped on my loved one to save your own life. Now, none oh, of this is true. The facts don't add up to prove mm-hmm. anything like that, but people mm-hmm. say things like this. But this dissension between the levels of, of victims uh, causes all sorts of behind-the-scenes strife and, frankly, divides these people up in a way that I think was ultimately harmful to them in getting what they needed for their ability to speak as one voice. That's right. um, Look, and even in the survivors, there's divisions between those who are physically burned and those who are mentally injured. The mental trauma that people suffered plays out in a ripple effect that's just devastating for this community. And in my view, people did not get the mental health care that they needed. As a result, there were you know, possible suicides or suicides mm-hmm. that have been attributed to this mm-hmm. right. and other problems. So uh, drug problems, lots of drug problems. Uh, and we talk about that in the book. So, yeah, I mean, it's really complicated when you say, you know, what do the families of the victims think? It's like, well, you have to say, well, which, which ones? Because they're very different. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. People have been told a certain line about this case and about this disaster. And they've been told a certain telling of it from the government perspective and backed up by how the news media covered it at the time. And so it is not welcome in some circles to say, well, you know, there are other facts for you to consider. Uh, So my job as a journalist is to lay out all the facts after all of these years and to say, look, here's here's what we know. Here's what these people say. Here's what these people say. You need to decide uh, yourself what you believe. But until now, People didn't have access to all of the different sides of this story. And uh, as a result, they, I'm not sure that they could come to, uh, you know, a, an informed conclusion. But I will tell you, some people don't want to hear. Some people don't want to hear what the Darians have to say. You know, Brian Butler, the photographer who shot that infamous video, he also became a villain in the mm-hmm. aftermath of this. Mm-hmm. People actually said, you know, you filmed while people died. Like the story was more important to you than people living. Well, that's not true. 
he didn't know, like anyone didn't know, the gravity of the situation. He sees a fire. You see him. The camera's rolling. You see him pushed out with the stampede. He's outside in the parking lot. He goes and takes his wide shot of a building on fire, which is what any news photographer is supposed to do if they're at the scene of breaking news is get your pictures. He doesn't know that it's deadly. And yet all of this is put onto him. He's seen as as some sort of villain. He's devastated by this and, and pretty much unfairly accused of things that he didn't actually do. So, um, so yeah, people don't necessarily want to hear from him. And then there's a, a twist in the book where I uh, hear from Matt Lauer. Uh, and he agreed to be interviewed. I know, he agreed to Else. be interviewed by me after <laughs> the scandal at the Today Show. In fact, I might have been his first on-the-record interview after he was fired by NBC. Oh. Because he makes a cameo appearance in this tragedy that is unexpected and interesting. And I thought it was fascinating. That he, of all the things, to, he he called me back and gave me great details, great information about uh, what small role he played in the aftermath of this fire. So we have 100 casualties directly related to the fire. And we do know that there were more later as a result of catastrophic, you know, post-traumatic stress, et cetera. Yes. Um, the Dedarians were charged with manslaughter, two counts each for manslaughter. Do I have so, that right? Correct. So 200, even though there were 100 uh, deaths, they're charged with 200 counts under two different theories of the law for each death. Uh, you know, people in the state uh, feel that justice wasn't served. And a part of that is because there was no mechanism in Rhode Island law for charging anyone for the injuries that people suffered. So you have charges related to the 100 deaths, but there are no charges allowed when it comes to those who were hurt. So you've got people who are injured to, you know, to the point where they're given last rights, but somehow survive. Mm-hmm. And then they're told by the attorney general's office, well, there's, there's no, there's never going to be justice for you. No one will ever be held accountable criminally for the harm that you suffered. Mm-hmm. And this is a problem to this day that people have a tough time getting their head around. But I will say Rhode Island law at the time was not the only one that had this issue. There are some states where, uh, because of the way laws were written with regard to uh, things like fires, uh, there might not have been any charges even for the deaths. I mean, that is a, a real legal uh, quagmire. This is complicated legal stuff. And so uh, it's not unusual. And it's not just in Rhode Island or something like that could happen. Mm-hmm. And the band manager, we know, served a couple years. But many of the victims' families actually had a little bit of sympathy for him. Did you find that? How did you find that? Did you find that odd? Did you find that refreshing? Like, how did you find that? Well, I think that Daniel Beakley is seen as some sort of fall guy mm-hmm. for larger problems. And we do explore uh, in the book that there are certainly larger issues here for us to be talking about. Uh, and we come back to that later about the legacy of this and, and why I think it's important that we not forget this case and how we're still suffering from the, the aftermath of it. But Daniel Beakley is seen as kind of the the patsy uh, mm-hmm. that he took the fall for other people. I mean, it's not Daniel Beakley who decides that they're doing pyrotechnics at their shows. This is a decision made by someone else. We're going to jazz things up. It's really important to note that Great White did not do pyrotechnics as part of its show uh, until this particular tour. In fact, they had performed at the station 
in 2000, just shortly after the Darien brothers had uh, purchased a nightclub business Mm -hmm. and they did know pyrotechnics. Uh, And so the, you know, there's a good question there about, you know, Dan, you know, really the mastermind of, of the pyrotechnics or is he just a person whose job it is to execute it? Look, he made terrible mistakes. He made a terrible decision. These gerbs that he set off are 15 by 15, which means they go 15 feet into the air for 15 seconds. This is a nightclub that had 12 foot ceilings. One of the things that comes out in the book, which was not publicized at the time, was there was a lot of paper trail, a lot of warnings to Daniel Bleakley ahead of time that these were dangerous things he was doing. He was doing. Hey, look, he broke the law. It's against Rhode Island law to have them. It was against Rhode Island law to bring them into the state. Uh, so he did all of those things. And he did something stupid. But look, there was a checklist uh, by the company that sold him these. And they said, look, if you're going to do these in this show. You're going to one-man bandit like you're, you're intending to. Here's 10 things you need to do to make sure that it's safe. And two that are really important was do a test. Hours before anyone shows up, go to the venue, test everything, do a dry run. And that way you'll see if these sparks are going to be hitting anything flammable or if they're going to fall in some place where you don't want them to do a test. We didn't do a test. During the show, have on either side of the stage, people have it holding um, fire extinguishers who will be at the ready to jump in in case something goes wrong and something catches on fire. Well, they didn't do that either. Uh, there was a whole other thing, list of things they did. They didn't do those. So, you know, people want to make him out to seem innocent. I wouldn't go that far. But in fairness to Dan Beakley, there's no way he could have known that that club was covered in highly flammable foam, that when these sparks hit it, the place would instantly become an inferno. That's not something you would anticipate as a roadie tour manager guy. Mm. So uh, in fairness to him, of course, he never intended for anyone to die. Neither did Jack Russell, neither did Mm -hmm. Derek, neither did anyone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, an intent has a lot to do with the law. Now, Daniel Beakley is seen somewhat as a, a folk hero by some because he pled guilty. Well, he was guilty. Mm-hmm. And this guy, Tom Bridey, who used to work for me as a reporter, who becomes Daniel Beakley's attorney, uh, comes up with a plea deal that is kind of incredible. He will serve about 18 months behind bars for killing 100 people. Ugh. So this is a deal that um, really makes people angry. I mean, they are just the there's a testimony that people before Daniel Bickley sent us where people are allowed to testify about their loved ones. You, it was carried live on television. I watched it on CNN out in California. It was blood curdling what people had to say. They were so outraged one after another after another. So after this happens, there's a great feeling of rage. And it's then it's all turned directed at the, the Darians because of the they are the only ones who are going to be held criminally accountable. And there's great pressure that, OK, this is our last chance for justice. We've got to convict those guys because basically Daniel Beakley got away with 18 months for killing 100 people. So it's complicated how people feel about him. He also did something to rehabilitate, rehabilitate his image which was interesting is he hand wrote a letter to each of the victim's families uh, expressing remorse. And uh, he appeared to have used, uh, you know, information from obituaries that were in the paper. So it wasn't just, you know, I'm going to talk about uh, this person. I'm going to say that they were a big Red Sox fan or something, yeah. some, some personal yeah. thing. You know, some families were offended by this. Some families ripped it up, never read it. Mm-hmm. But word got out. Uh, 
certainly someone made sure that word got out that he had done this. And this softened his image in the public as somebody who, who was genuinely remorseful for what happened. And there's, there's no reason to think he wouldn't be. How long did you work on this story, start to finish? I started about 10 years ago was when I made my initial inquiries with um, the brothers about whether they'd be interested in talking. Uh, also, at that point, I dove into the archives. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go to um, libraries. You know, one of the things that's interesting about this case is that uh, 2003 is also an odd time for accessing old media. Mm-hmm. So these days you can go to your TV station, you can find old stories. You can't find that from 2003. Uh, newspaper archives, some of them electronically are good, some are not. Yeah. Uh, the main newspaper there uh, called the Province Journal, there was a lot of uh, stuff that was missing uh, from their electronic archives. So I would plant myself uh, for days and days at a time looking at microfilm, uh, <laughs> just reading the newspaper as people read it at the time. Mm-hmm. The circulation of the newspaper at that point was uh, omnipresent. Everyone read the Province Journal. It was the driver of all news media coverage in that part of Southern New England. And so it was important to see what it was that people were actually consuming. And from that was things that, frankly, that were missing from the electronic archives that, you know, were important mistakes that were made that were would have been fixed electronically that you know you can't get rid of them so easily when right. it's a photo right. of the actual newspaper right. for example that story we talked about legacy of death does not exist in the electronic archives of the province journal so interesting isn't that right. now i don't know if that's just a quirk of you know, lousy housekeeping or whatever. But uh, that was frustrating because I, I heard about this story and I tried to access it uh, remotely and th- you couldn't do it. I had to actually see it on the microphone. Wow. All these years later, there's never going to be a solid answer to this, despite the fact that the common sense angle, as we continue to hear, right? Um, your experiences with Michael and Jeffrey Dadarian what was that like? I know it took it took time for you to get them to speak to you or open up to you, as it were. How do you see that relationship now? And and I guess I have so many questions about where are they? How are they doing? You know, certainly I don't want to make this about the Dadarians because it's certainly right. not their one part of it. There's so I wish I could talk to every single person that was affected by this and it's just impossible. So I I would never want someone to listen to this and say, this is all about the Dadarians because it's so, so clearly not. Reading this book and reading the stories about the man who was found alive in the pile of people and hearing his story about how he somehow just laid down the right way on his side and in the fetal position and caught some air in there just hoping and praying that somebody was going to move some of the people on top of him. I mean, that I'll never forget that. I'll never forget how I felt reading these stories and about Tracy King, the, the really tall guy who broke the window and was bringing people out. And he he died as he lived, just trying to be a nice guy and help people out. Um, right. You know, these people, these people matter a great deal. And it's. No, I hear what you're saying. Look, I, when we talk about the story, people want to focus, uh, understandably, when a new book comes out mm-hmm. and it's in the news because it has, uh, you know, newsworthy information. People want to focus on the journalism. But as you know, from reading the book, 
That's not how I wrote it. Right. I wrote this as a, a tragedy seen through the eyes of a handful of people. You are correct. A hundred people are dead. Hundreds more are hurt. Ripple mm-hmm. effects are felt by thousands. Every person deserves to have their story told. Every victim deserves to be memorialized. But in trying to tell this in a way that is uh, easily accessed by people, you have to make decisions. You have to choose right. what we say in writing. You have to pick a lens. Mm-hmm. And so I pick a handful of people as the representatives of the many but these are not random people. They're there because they're, they're, they're before, during, and after this tragedy. But also, these people bear witness to very important parts of this story that are key to understanding what happened. And we can talk a little bit about those, but included in that are the Darians, and that they had told me their story for the very first time, which certainly mm-hmm. gets them in the news. But you're right, they're mm-hmm. one a couple of the handful of these mm-hmm. people that we see this tragedy through beginning, mm-hmm. middle and end. You know, one of the eyewitnesses is a, a, a swimmer named Phil Barr, yeah. uh, probably the part of the story that moves people emotionally the most, uh, you know, people, uh, emotional buttons are pushed when we hear about horror and tragedy, mm-hmm. but they're really pushed when you hear about triumph and, mm-hmm. and people overcoming odds. And Phil is one of those people. People kept disregarding him like, you're not so bad off. You're not so bad off. No, he almost died because and he was pretty like, bad off. Yeah, he was he was on the cusp of death. And they're like, yeah, we've got more important people than you to deal with or people who appear to be more gravely injured. But, um, but look, Phil uh, goes on to be part of these funds. One of the tragedies in within this tragedy is that in the aftermath of the fire people did not get the help they needed and so eventually a grassroots effort comes up really kind of an amazing thing called the station family fund where it's basically survivors raising money for other survivors Mm. and i mean raising money they're helping you pay your rent your cable bill your car payment really grassroots stuff modest amounts of money that are raised for these people and it's desperate because they're not getting the help from government uh, and charities that they need you know this is not a group of people like you know rock and rollers with tattoos are not the same thing as kids with cancer and an alzheimer's walk and things like that so right right. so they don't get the uh, outpouring of support from traditional charities people uh, get faulted for for people get faulted for going out to a show and having a good time correct so so um so people step up and uh, Phil is among those of the, yeah. the survivors, the really injured survivors who steps up to help other survivors. So he is in the room when they're offered the deal with the devil. And the mm-hmm. deal with the devil is that, you know, they need money. They desperately need money for these, for these victims. And in comes a representative of Jack Russell and Greg White and says, you want some money? We'll give you some money. We'll do a little concert tour to benefit uh, the, the victims. So they must decide that is it you know more important for them to get this money to help people who are desperately in need of help, or is it more important to say we will never accept money from the person who caused all this pain and suffering? So Phil is not incidental. Phil is there at these crucial moments, uh, not just the fire, but in the aftermath. We don't we wouldn't be in that room and know these things not for these people willing to talk after all these years and share that type mm-hmm. of intimate uh, first person view of events. I'll never, ever like Great White ever again. Um, I never want to hear them. I and, you know, that could just seem really, you know, immature on my part, but maybe. I just think that it it was idiocy uh, to the max what happens, and it ruins so many lives. Where are Michael and Jeffrey Dadarian now? 
Well, it's interesting about the Tedarian brothers is that they never cut and run. Yeah. And this is something that people find hard to believe. They figure that, you know, after these guys were vilified, they were pressured into taking a plea mm-hmm. bargain. One of them went to prison. Um, and so uh, people think, well, you know, they, they're the most hated people uh, in the state. So certainly they would have fled. But they didn't. They, mm-hmm. they stayed right there in their communities, in the homes they were already in. You know, one of the uh, odd things about this story, uh, especially when it comes to the media coverage, was that um, at the height of the rage, when people were so angry at the Tadarians because mm-hmm. of those, you know, initial, the initial rush to judgment, um, and there was so much grief, um, and the Tadarians would not grant uh, interviews with mm-hmm. the media, the local newspaper, the Province Journal, printed their home addresses in the newspaper. Ugh. So something that we would call doxing today, yeah. which we yeah. all know is bad, but frankly, yeah. in 2003, people in the journalism profession knew that was a bad thing to do. They did that. But despite that type of attention and vilification, um, they never left. They stayed and they mm-hmm. did their jobs and they recovered their lives. And, you know, in the course of working on this over so many years, when I would go and visit, uh, occasionally we would go out and we would have lunch or something. And I would be uh, on the edge of my seat wondering, OK, is somebody going to come over and like throw acid at us right. sitting here at this, right. this diner? Uh, and it was never like that. In fact, it was quite the opposite. People sometimes came up to them and like gave them a hug and said, I, you, were, you were given a raw deal. Mm-hmm. So real people in Rhode Island often saw, and there's actually some research to back this up, that the prosecution of in this case was politically motivated mm-hmm. and it wasn't necessarily motivated by the facts. At the same time, though, I will say that public uh, opinion research from the time of the the scheduled trials also showed that people were going to convict the Darians even if they thought they were innocent, even if there was evidence that proved that they were not guilty of what they were accused of, they would still be convicted because this was somebody you know, needed last, to pay. Somebody needs to pay, and this was they were the last ones mm-hmm. after the Beakley mm-hmm. deal to be held legally mm-hmm. accountable. But no, uh, the they say they have never been threatened in public anything like that despite how it's been portrayed in the news media. And it took a very long time for that memorial to be built in West yes. Warwick. It took a really long time. They had to really fight a lot for that, didn't they? Well, they had to stop fighting among themselves first. Part mm-hmm. of the conundrum was that, remember we talked about the different factions of the yeah. victims. This is where we see it come to, to the problem with that comes to fruition. So while you have people trying to create a memorial at the site to remember the victims, you have a group of very angry, outspoken, uh, and popular with the news media faction that hates everybody, that yeah. blames the survivors. And the among the people they blame is uh, the person who owned the property. Remember, mm-hmm. the Darians were renters. Somebody actually else owned the building. Right. And so while one part is trying to get the guy to donate the land for memorial, these other people are out publicly calling for him to be charged with murder, to face the death penalty, threatening his family, mm-hmm. uh, on and on and on and on. And so he doesn't, you know, it's hard, I think, probably for him to want to deal with these people. Mm-hmm. But then uh, one of the main characters, uh, one of the main subjects of the book, Gina Russo, who is a survivor mm-hmm. of the fire. Incredible uh, she, story. She makes it happen. People trust Gina, and Gina steps in, and she gets to the owner. She cuts the deal to make it all come together. And then she goes and raises the money, millions, a couple million dollars in either direct donations or in-kind donations. You know, people like, you know, donated the pavement for the to, for the parking lot. Mm-hmm. She gets this memorial done. She's a force of nature. Uh, and so 
But if not for Gina, I don't know that that would have happened. Incredible. This, I could go on and on, but I'm going to let you get back to your life. Um, Trial by Fire. It is, as a New Englander, um, you don't have to be a New Englander to to enjoy this book and find it interesting, by the way. Um, but it it this is a story that's really close to my heart. Thank you for digging in and answering questions for people. And I will finish it, promise. <laughs> Matt Lauer, huh? Mm, that's a whole nother story, isn't it? <laughs> it is all a story. Um, well, I, I really appreciate you talking to me. And Jill, thank you for having me on. You have a great show. I, I appreciate you having me on as a guest. This weekend is the 18th anniversary of the Station Nightclub Fire. I'd like to think that we've learned something all these years later. Club safety, for one, has improved in the wake of the fire. But I don't think we've learned very much about jumping to conclusions. The name of Scott's book is Trial by Fire, A Devastating Tragedy, 100 Lives Lost, in a 15-year search for the truth. The book is available everywhere books are found, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, etc. Online, ScottJamesWriter.com. Follow him online, Scott James Writer on Facebook and Instagram, Scott James on Twitter. Next episode, I talk to a survivor of the Station Nightclub fire and someone who can speak to the impact that the fire had on the community. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the show, rate, and review. We are definitely growing, so let's keep that forward momentum. At Crime of the Truest Kinds online. And available everywhere you get your crime stories, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon, Pandora, Deezer, Stitcher, Podchaser, TuneIn. You get it. And I leave you with this. Lock your goddamn doors. 